tree. Uh, we stocked up Living Words Food Bank over the holidays, um, which has probably subsequently run out. But that's okay. I just need to say thank you for all of those that uh, I was able to give Pastor Paul a phone call this week and let him know that an additional $7,200 came in from you guys. So thank you. Yeah. Soul Sanctuary. Thank you for looking out to others during this tough time. Thank you for doing that. So Paul was just absolutely thrilled. And uh, we'll be putting it together and uh, getting their order. And we have people in our community, servant leaders, who will go out and buy the food and drop it off. So thank you so much. Um, as you are well aware, we pick a book of the Bible, walk through it. We took a break over Advent. And now we're jumping back in where we left off. We're in the book of 1 Peter, and uh, we're picking it up at chapter 3. Back in November when I preached on chapter 2 and I dealt with submission to governmental authority, at that time I couldn't imagine a more unpopular topic. I was wrong. Today is a more unpopular topic. Because what we're doing is we're continuing with Peter's teaching of being subject to an authority for the sake of Christ. And he's already told us that we are going to be subject to the governing authorities. He told us to be subject to our masters, our employers, and today he addresses Christian wives and Christian husbands. That awkward moment. Now I'm looking over our, our audience here, and uh, you know, some of you are, well, I'm not married. What does this have to do? Listen, just listen. Because if by chance you ever do make that decision of entering in marriage, it will then completely apply to you. So don't tune out. Don't go on uh, TikTok. Follow along with me. As well as husbands and wives, please follow along with me. Because this passage that we are about to look at should have a wick coming out of it by how it makes people blow up. Okay? Um, I'm going to do my best to explain what Peter means here, but it doesn't matter what I say. I wonder if I'm going to get beaten like a piñata when I leave this place at the end of this gathering. So I've made it through one. Can I make it through two? With that in mind, let me pray. God, we want you to be present as you always are. But we need to be aware of you in new ways. And we want you to speak to us and we want you to challenge us. Show us things today that need your healing touch. That when we leave this time together, we will know that you are in the process of restoring us. And may we be focused without distraction as you speak to our souls. May we hear your voice. Make these passages clear. May we see our story in this story. And in these big ideas, we need to find our healing and hope. And God, we know that you will be with us as you always are. Just continue to reveal yourself, I pray. Amen. Okay, so you got your Bibles got to have them, please. They're on your phone, trust me. You can use this thing called Google and search Bible. I'm sure you'll find it. Context is vital. And, and again today, it's extremely important that we have to remember that Peter is writing to Christians who are living in the middle of a very large Roman empire that is often hostile to Christians. So Peter's words here are written to encourage Christians not to disengage from society, but in fact to live in the midst of a pagan world and influence, influence this world where it can be influenced. So let me remind you, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we read, Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 
He then goes on and he adds, he says in 2.18, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but those who are harsh. And now we come to 1 Peter 3, which begins, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay. Now some people in idea they hear this, they see this, and from the very beginning they say, this is crazy, I don't believe it. I don't believe this. And then what they do is they go out and they try to find somebody who's going to explain away what Peter has said here. Why he doesn't really mean what he wrote. If you go to Romans chapter 1, it actually calls that the suppression of truth. And so Paul says that there are many people who twist scriptures to their own destruction. They don't like what they read, and so they want to change what it says. And so today I'm going to start by reminding us of the lordship of Jesus. The basic idea is this. We don't follow Jesus because each issue he teaches makes the most sense to us. We follow him because he is Lord. He is Lord and his word is sovereign. Now, if you're the kind of person that has to be convinced of each individual issue before you will obey, then you actually really don't understand the lordship of Jesus. A lot of people assume love for the scripture. Oh, I love the scripture, I love the Bible. Um, but you can see they don't because of their attitude towards passages like this one and many others. I don't like this. I want to change it. I don't want to submit to it. And so what we, they end up doing is they end up picking and choosing. And so really what we have to do is we have to obey and we have to come to a place in our life that we obey Jesus because he is Lord and we don't get this vote on each individual issue in Scripture. Now for some people the issue is not what we'll talk about. For some people, the issue is actually the lordship of Jesus. And so we need to decide, is he Lord? And if so, do we do what he says? And for those who doubt, especially within our context, as I begin to talk about marriage, one of the things that we have to approach this area of is to really take a look at our culture and consider what a mess marriage is in our Canadian culture right now. After my research this, uh, this week, it seems very widely accepted that over 40% of Canadian marriages are expected to end in divorce before the couple reaches their 50th wedding anniversary. These stats don't include further separations experienced by unmarried spouses like the common-law couples. And so what we find now in our Canadian culture is that separation and divorce is a normative life event for many Canadians. And not only are more people avoiding marriage altogether, for that matter, over 30% of the children now born in Canada are born out of wedlock. I would say that something's not working. So for many in the church, also marriage isn't healthy. They may not be divorced, but they could be just two roommates living separate lives under one roof. Something tells us that we have strayed from what God's original design of marriage and what it should be. Maybe you're within earshot of my voice today and your marriage is just not healthy. You might not be divorced, but you're just two roommates living, under, living separate lives under one roof. If that happens to be you, do not brush off so quickly. 
thinking that we have figured out a better way. That's not what marriage is about. And so that's why I'm looking at the audience here today, and I look at our single young adults and adults, and I'm going, maybe you're not there yet, but the scripture is very applicable for you today, so pay, pay attention. I read this passage of scripture, the first thing that pops in people's minds is we're going backwards. We don't want to hear this. This passage is going back into old school. It's going back into chauvinistic patriarchy. One of my favorite words on Twitter this, this week. No, no. Most of us have never really seen this lived out. It reminds me of what G.K. Chesterton said. He said this, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Untried. So in the ancient world, when Christianity was beginning to take hold around the Roman Empire, there developed a very interesting phenomenon that faced many new believers. How were new converts supposed to relate to their spouses who may or may not be Christians? So the dynamic here that Peter is writing to is that both husband and wife are unbelievers, and then one gets saved. One gets saved. So now how are they to relate to one another in society at large? Because, again, there were certain cultural expectations that were at play here. So here's what Peter tells us, and we pick it up in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way that holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Got a text today from a buddy. Oh, you'd remember Jeff Price from Ontario. He spoke here when we were in the Ukraine. Texted me this morning. Hey, just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I go, great. I need it. Preaching first Peter 3 on submission. He said, you're gutsy. So we want to talk about this. This is, this is, this is political firebombs going off here. So what does it mean? It starts off in the same way. Again, context determines the meaning of the passage that we're looking at. And if you remember, and if you go back into chapter 2, the context is that we've been talking about various relationships, various earthly institutions that God has set up. Government, um, authority structures, right? God has has a purpose for these things. One is to reveal himself, the other is to keep order. So you have government, you have employees, you also then have this idea of marriage. And likewise, in the same way, marriage is an earthly institution that God has set up to reveal himself and to provide stability. We see that in Scripture. Marriage is not one of the most important, it's probably one of the most important human relationships. And so it's no wonder that Peter actually now comes and he begins to spend some you know, I would say a few sentences to help his readers with a difficult situation. Now, there's a leadership component that God has given to men to play in the role of the home. 
Now, I often say that I am a small c complementarian. So my theology, like there's egalitarian and complementarian. So there are those who will say that there, there is an ultimate head, the man's the head. There are others who say that both parties are equal. You can have a theological viewpoint. I have no problem with that either or. Um, some people get bent out of the joint when I, when I say that I'm a complementarian. In other words, I'm a small c complementarian. And I feel why? Because the buck ends with me and my family. Okay? Just, I'm just being honest. This is where I come from. Other people don't live their lives, function in their marriages the same way. I do. Does that mean my wife is subservient to me? Not a chance. Sorry, dear. I'll be late coming home. Really late. See, it's interesting that the leadership component that God has given to men in the home, when you think about it, has has nothing to do with women not leading in the workplace or in government or in society. Okay? It doesn't say women be subject to men. It doesn't say that. It has to do with the home. Wives are not told to be subject because they are inferior. There's no hint of that in this passage. I need to throw it out there. Full disclosure. In fact, it's downright denied. Peter says to the husband, your wives are heirs with you of the gracious gifts of life. So the the promises and the privileges of salvation are very equal. When God talks about the creation of male and female, he says the male and female are both created in what? In the image of God. So there's no hint of inferiority. And I can't stress that stronger. So initially, we might wonder why Peter has six verses about Christian wives and only one verse about Christian husbands. Well, it's not because the husbands have it all together and and don't necessarily need six verses. But the real reason is because in Roman society, when there was this greater potential for a, a, a family and societal disruption, when a wife became a Christian, than when the husband became a Christian in the family. Do you hear that? When the wife became a Christian, all hell breaks loose. The potential was there for a new Christian wife to try to dominate her unsafe husband. A woman becomes a Christian and all of a sudden she feels superior to her husband. She's got this newfound freedom. She feels like she now knows what the Bible teaches and she belongs to God and she knows more than he does and, and, and that you know she can be a better leader in the family. And not only that, she keeps meeting these wonderful men at, at church who are fine, outstanding Christians and she becomes envious. I want somebody like that in my household. And she then becomes indifferent to her own husband and much more, and may I say it, even attracted to other men who love Christ because she sees the potential of a wonderful life, of what it could be. And this can lead to great and serious problems. And so for a Christian wife in the first century, especially, her strategy was to continue in submission to her husband, whether or not he was a believer. Now, like in all the other instances, Peter addresses the Christian citizen. He, he addresses the Christian slave and now the Christian wife that really they had very little power to affect authoritative change. They could, however, live out their faith in such a way as to make the authority glad that they were Christians. And the Christian citizen in the pagan Roman Empire was not to live in rebellion or, or in protest but rather, the Christian citizen was expected to be active in doing good. The slave was to go over and above what was required in his field of employment. The, the, the Christian wife now is continuing her respect to her husband rather than lording her faith over him. 
She was to do good to her husband so that he would see her faith in action and potentially come to faith in Christ himself. That was the whole purpose. The Bible doesn't teach anyone to submit to authority because they like the person in authority or the way the authority treats them. But because it's by nature, it is the right thing to do. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Like if there isn't passages of Scripture that are more important for us today. And a biblical submission is very interesting. In the end of 1 Peter 2, you know, it challenged us to respond to God in an honoring way, especially when treated unfairly. And the key term throughout this entire segment is the word submit. That, that Greek term has military roots, meaning you know, to fall in rank under the authority of no, uh, another or to subject oneself for the purpose of obeying or pleasing another person. So Peter tells us that such submission honors God and advances his purposes in the world. And so when you think about it, biblical submission, properly understood, isn't a sign of weakness, but it is actually a sign of strength. Also, we are only personally accountable to our own obedience to his word and what he tells us to do. And I think sometimes people have forgotten that. Peter tells a slave to obey their masters regardless of how mean they are. The notion that obedience to human authority is conditional on how authority acts is actually completely unbiblical and, and, and rooted, when you think about it, in rebellious pride. This is where I don't make friends. David, when you think about it, submitted to King Saul even after Saul's anointing was revoked. Now, let's get back to our text. As wonderful as marriage can be. Can I get an amen from people that it requires a, a lot of give and take to love another person? Yeah, of course it does. It's a lot of give and take to love another in a way that honors God and our spouse. So Peter addresses a situation in which a wife has become a Christian while her, her spouse remains an unbeliever, and she experiences pushback from him or, or possibly worse. See, the Roman cultural expectation is that wives took on the faith of their husbands, and in this case specifically, it was probably Zeus. Now, Christians can't do that. Why? Because we call that idolatry. So then how does the Christian wife relate to her unbelieving husband who is probably upset about everything that's going on in the house right now because she's got this newfound faith. One of Peter's biggest appeals is that Christians act in a way that puts to shame those who slander the Christian lifestyle. We see that in chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 16. The, um, this commendable lifestyle will help hostile unbelievers applaud Christian genuineness. In other words, our example is Jesus Christ, who being the Son of God has higher status than anyone. And yet it was Jesus who washes Peter's feet like a domestic slave. It's Jesus' example that Peter calls us to follow in all of our relationships in life. So we need not be concerned about maintaining our rights because Jesus trusted his Father, the righteous judge, to do just that, and so should we. In other words, God's looking out over us. So Peter's advice to Christian wives whose husbands are unbelievers is not to be argumentative, but instead try, you know, try to badger into the kingdom. 
you know, rather she should live in such a way that her life becomes a persuasive sermon. This is what Peter's saying. He writes that the husband would see his wife's conduct. He says that this conduct was to be respectful and pure. This is what Peter writes. And she is to care for and love her husband. She is to see that she respects him and that she is to conduct herself with purity. And I find it interesting that it, it, it's one's behavior that becomes convincing and not words. How true is that even for today's society? Where if I, as Christians, our behavior becomes convincing and not our words. And you can't talk your husband into the kingdom. You've got to be willing to, to live out your Christianity before him. This is what Peter's saying. He's got to observe your faith in action. It's a wordless sermon wherein you show off the beauty of Jesus. And this has been the theme for Peter. You know, when you think about it, we want to prove Christianity by being right. You know, we're smarter, everybody else is dumber, you know. Uh, here, a greater beauty, a more attractive beauty is shown by gracious, submissive spirit to those who take advantage of us, whether it's governmental, whether it's employee-based, or where we find ourselves today. Our beauty, our beauty, is greater than our external. It's our Christ-likeness, both male and female. And I think these things are true for all Christian wives, whether or not their husbands are believers. However, there are conditions with submissions that all Christian wives need to realize. And it's funny that I'm talking about this. I, I'm writing this message going, I, I am talking to women. Am I crazy? I'm telling them how to live their lives according to Scripture. But then I do that every Sunday to both male and female. This one is just so much more direct. makes me feel so much more uncomfortable. You know, if there was ever a condition, if a husband requires his wife to sin... For example, in first century Rome, you know, they, they worship false deities of the empire. You know, would the husband require his Christian wife to engage in pagan worship? We would obviously call that sin. We'd obviously call that idolatry. Well, then she should not submit to him and do it. She should not engage. She cannot partake in this religion any longer. It's at that point that submission to Christ takes precedent over submission to society, submission to her husband. And so whenever an authority seeks to cause us to sin, whether it's government, whether it's employer, whether it's in our personal relationships, we can't submit to that request at all. We can't. Another condition is the condition of submission to an abusive husband. God will not require us to submit to one who uses our submission either as a license for their own sin or a means to lord over us. You hear from this pastor, if one's being abused in the marriage, I'm the first to tell you, get out. And then let's get some therapy, let's get some involvement in there, but let's get safe first. In all examples, perfection is not the condition of submission, but there are limitations in each section that is mentioned by Peter. Here we find at this passage that wives are called to submit to your own husbands in respect and purity. So if you go to verses 3 and 4, Peter's not telling women to look bad externally, as some have taken it. 
He's not saying it's sinful to braid your hair or to wear jewelry. He's not saying avoid designer labels or expensive clothing. None of, none of that is sinful or wrong. However, what he is saying is not to focus too much on the externals, but be mostly concerned with who you are on the inside who you are in the secret places that only God can see. And so not only does this apply for Christian wives, this also applies for ladies in general, singles. Who are you really? Rather than can be seen literally, you know, cosmetics, God is more concerned about who you are internally. Your internal beauty is far more valuable. It's far more than the external. And again, there's nothing wrong with looking nice, right? But God sees modesty and inner beauty as, as very um, uh, attractive for Christian women. And so ladies, cultivate a quiet, gentle spirit. Avoid the dominating and argumentative spirit. And I would say that to guys too. Like, come on. I, in context, the most beautiful women on the inside tend to be very beautiful on the outside. Have you ever noticed that? You know, have you ever noticed how makeup can't change an ugly disposition? Have you ever noticed how makeup can't enhance a beautiful disposition? Now in verses 5 and 6, Peter appeals to Sarah, the mother of Israel. Though we don't have much record of, in, in the scriptures about how she submitted to Abraham, you know. And she wasn't perfect. But he, Peter explains and then gives women an example to follow. You know, again, we don't know what Sarah looked like because that's not the issue. But we know that she was beautiful to God. That's the issue. We notice what I would call from this passage four key words, these verses that, that, uh, that help us see the character that God prizes specifically in women. The first word is translated to put their hope. I, I would call this faith. God God wants faith. That word translated here means to look forward to something with the implication of confidence about something to coming to pass. To put one's confidence in someone or something. So a holy woman believes in the promises of God and these promises transform her from the inside out. Her faith defines her. Faith is so important. The second word is there. It's interesting. Obey or obedience. Again, translated to follow instructions, to obey, to be subject to. When you think of it, Think of this. All of us, all of us, men and women, have relationships in which we are obedient. All of us. It could be familial. It could be work. It could be wherever. We all have relationships in which we are obedient. Those who haven't learned obedience in human relationships have a very hard time in obedience to God. But we all have relationships in which we have to be obedient. The third word is what I would call righteousness. And it comes from the, where we get that phrase, to do what is right. Translated, it means to, to meet a high-level exemplary conduct, to do what is right, to be a good citizen. A woman of God lives an upright life and blesses those around her. This is where actually Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 comes in. Blesses those around her. A hard-working woman blesses those around her. And then finally, we have what I call courage, from the verb translated, give way to fear. God has no intention for his daughters to live lives of fear and terror under the thumb of tyrannical husbands or anybody else for that matter. Rather, his daughters are fearless. Daughters are courageous. They rise above a reign of terror. 
They're not intimidated. They're to be strong. They live upright lives because of their character rather than out of fear. And this doesn't mean that Christian wives have it easy. They didn't in this time when Peter was writing, not at all. But they can find that in God they have the strength that they need to live with joy, with righteousness, with purity and faith and courage no matter what the circumstances. We know that Sarah followed her husband and that he led her into godliness. Again, she wasn't perfect. And there were times where she did not submit. Well, go figure. But overall, the portrait of Sarah was that of a godly woman whose adorning was internal. And so women, you are Sarah's children, as Peter is saying here, if you seek her example. We learned in Romans 4 that we are Abraham's offspring if we follow his example of faith. And so Peter, Peter captures this for, the, for women by saying, you are also children of Sarah. You have her faith. She did not fear, but rather she believed. So you too can have a strong faith like Sarah as you seek in her beauty. Now, what we need to realize in this passage, that Peter is not making a Christian law, but rather a vital point. If you rely on your, your beauty to keep your man, you're going to be very short-sighted. Your inner beauty won't fade. Don't neglect it. And so your submission to Jesus takes precedence over your submission to any other human being. But submission to a non-Christian husband, Peter makes it very clear that maybe an important element of this conversation, uh, it, it may be a very important element of his conversion to Christianity. When he sees the reality of his wife's faith as it worked out through her life, it's a powerful testimony to him of the truth of the Christian message. And you have in that marriage a chance to win him over for Jesus. Whew. Okay, I got through that. I'm still living. Now we turn to the men. And, and, and again, you see Peter turns his attention to the Christian husband whose wife may or may not be a believer. And he begins the verse with the word translated in the same way or likewise. So what does likewise mean here? Well, he used it at the beginning of our text for Christian wife to submit to the authority of her husband. In the same way, we are to submit to the authority of her husband. In the same way we submit... In the same way we submit to the authority of her husband, we are to submit to the authorities of the governing authorities as well as our masters. And here he writes, Likewise, in regards to the wife's submission to the husband, so in a very real but slightly different way, the husband is to submit to his wife. Husbands are not called to submit their authority. Okay? That's why I say I'm a complementarian small c. I, the buck ends with me. But to submit themselves to their wife's needs. In other words, husbands are, are to stop thinking about themselves permanently. <laughs> And to consider and literally submit to their wives' needs. To put her needs first. And so guys, we use our position of strength or any position of authority we have. What? To serve her and not herself. You put that all together and here's what it means. Men, you should never lead independent of your wife. You weren't given this role because you make better decisions. No, for many of you men, you don't make better decisions. Your wife is given to you as a gift from God to help keep you from your own stupidity. 
If you don't consult your wife in any and all decisions, I would go so far as to say that you're a fool. God has brought you together. You are one. There's an equality there. And men, we're to use our position of authority to serve her, not serve ourselves. So when we come to a disagreement, you can talk things out. You can pray. Maybe you still can't come to a consensus. You have to decide. Is this a place where you feel like you have to think for the best interest of the family, or do you just let it go? Think of it this way. Submission is interesting. Submission implies disagreement. This, I found this fascinating. I, I don't know who said it, but I found it fascinating. Submission implies disagreement. It's not submission if there's always agreement. So to me, that's fascinating. So Peter goes on, and he makes two very strong commands to the men. He says, live with your wives and treat them with respect. Literally means according to knowledge. So husbands, we have to become experts on our wives, help us, studying them intently. As a matter of fact, in all seriousness, what what is her deep-seated concerns and fears, and how are you going to help her work through them in safety and the security of your love that you're trying to provide in the relationship? So those who aren't married, listen, you should be asking, what are her hopes and her dreams, and where where appropriate, how are you going to help them realize this? What What are her strengths? What are her weaknesses spiritually, emotionally, physically? How will you praise her in her strengths? How will you help her in her areas of weakness? Maybe you're probably thinking, well, what about the line about the weaker partner? Doesn't that imply inferiority? Actually, no, that's not what it means. The roles we play do not imply inequality. If I'm playing a baseball game, umpire makes a call. I'm supposed to abide by the call the ump made. That doesn't mean that he is superior to me. It's just that I realize how that game works out. There may be a different context where he may have to submit to me for a whole other issue. When I look into the scripture, there is submission in the Trinity. One God, three persons. They are all equally God, and yet Jesus said he was submitted to the Father. Jesus himself said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Equal in essence, but different in role. Well, you might be sitting here saying, well, the guy that I'm married to doesn't deserve my submission. That's not the point. It has nothing to do whether your husband brought you flowers. It has to do with Jesus' command. Your husband may not deserve your submission, but Jesus does. Paul talked about our life being spiritual sacrifices. So you have to think of our submission to our husband. We have to think of our submission even to our wives as an offering to Jesus. Now, the weaker vessel is a difficult phrase. I'll say that right off. This is, this is not weaker in terms of intelligence or capacities for leadership or wisdom at all. But com- uh, commentators basically say it means three things, one of three things or three things. One of the things that you have to gr- grasp on is that they are literally physically weaker. Now, the word vessel in one, some translations is used throughout the Bible to refer to the human body. They are the weaker vessel. We, and, and Paul calls us earth, earthen vessels, right? So we get that refers to the human body. So generally speaking, most husbands can overpower their wives. I have to be honest, I've seen a woman that could probably give their husband a run for his money, but hey, generally speaking, men are physically more powerful than their wives. Secondly, they are weaker in authority. It can be presumed as that. Don't forget, Peter just spent six verses explaining that wives should be subject to their husbands. So positionally, 
Is a woman in a weaker position? It's quite possible. Third, it could mean that they're weaker in terms of their emotional sensitivity. And I don't think that there's much disagreement at this, okay? Agree with me? Girls are wired differently than guys. Do I get an amen? Right. Guys are like, you've heard this, guys are like waffles, girls are like spaghetti. Now, some of you, you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to have to explain this. When we say that men are like waffles, it doesn't mean that we waffle on all of our decisions that are gen- or that we're generally unstable. What it means is that we as men process life differently. We process life in boxes, in happy places. Take a look at a waffle. What do you see? A collection of boxes. And they're all separated from each other, right? That makes convenient holding places for us. It's typically how we as men process life. Now, again, our thinking is divided into boxes. We only have room for one issue in every box. All right? One issue and one issue only. That first issue of life goes into the first box. The second issue of life goes into the second box, and so on and so on and so on. So the typical man lives in one box at a time and one box only. And when a man is at work, what do we do? We are at work. When we're in the garage tinkering around, what are we doing? We're tinkering around. When we're watching TV, what are we doing? We're simply watching TV. And that is why, as though we look like we're in a trance and we can ignore everything else that is going on around us. That is why our significant others can look at us and say, what are you thinking? And we can say, nothing. We're answering truthfully. Nothing. Social scientists call this compartmentalizing, you know, putting life and responsibilities into different compartments. And as a result, we as men are problem solvers by nature. Right? I was really good at that when I first got married. I could fix all my wife's problems. She's not even finished telling the story. I'm telling her to fix it. Right? That's who we are by nature. We enter into a box in our brain. We size up the problem. We formulate a solution. We conquer it. We consider what it takes to be successful. We focus on it. In communication, they, we look for the, the bottom line. We just want to get to the Let's just get to the bottom line. When we find it, we want to get there as quickly as possible. So in decision-making, what we do is we look for an approach that we can buy into. We can apply it as often as possible. Oh, I did it here. It should be able to work over here. And we keep moving on. And so we strategically organize our life in boxes. But there's some boxes we don't succeed in, like taking out the garbage or the trash. So we take those boxes and we put them back and we focus on the boxes that we're really good at. And the bottom line with men is that we feel best about ourselves when we're solving problems, when we're accomplishing what we prioritize in our boxes in our brain, and we spend most of our time doing what we are best at and attempt to ignore the things that make us feel deficient. That's how we operate. I guess I'm head nodding, right? (laughs) You're feeling my pain. And so in contrast to the man's waffle approach, women process life more like a plate of pasta. A plate of spaghetti holds all these different noodles together. They, they actually all touch one another somehow. And if you attempt to follow one noodle around the plate, you, you'll intersect with a lot of other different noodles. And you might even seamlessly switch over to another noodle without even knowing it. And that's how women face life. Every thought, every issue connects to every other thought and every other issue in some way. And life is much more of a process for women than it is for men. This is how we're designed. 
And as a result, women are typically better at multitasking than men. It's funny, because I remember when the boys were growing up, and Sharon would be just like, okay, guys, do this, 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 and I'd have to stop her and say, no, they can only do one thing at a time. Like, you just can't do that. But a woman can talk on the phone, she can prepare a meal, make a shopping list, work on the agenda for tomorrow's business meeting, give instructions to her kids as they're going out the door, close the door with one foot, right, without skipping a beat. Because all her thoughts, all of her emotions, all her convictions, everything is connected. She is able to process more information and keep track of more activities. And guys, we have a remote control, right? And as a result, most women pursue connecting life together. They, they, they solve problems, but from a much different perspective than us as men. Women constantly sense the need to talk things through. And in conversation, a woman can link together the logical, the emotional, the relational, the spiritual aspects of the issue. These links come to her so naturally the way she is created. So the conversation for her is effortless. There's so many words. And as she connects all these issues together, the answer to the question at hand bubbles to the surface and is readily accepted. But this often creates significant stress for couples because while she's making all the connections, we as men are frantically trying to jump from box to box, trying to keep up with the conversation. At some point in time, usually our eyes roll back into our head as the tidal wave of information just comes over us. And she's done, and she feels better, and we're done, and we feel overwhelmed. But that's how we're wired. We're wired so differently. And so Peter is addressing us, men. And what does this mean? He says, treat your wives gently. I go so far as to say, treat them like a piece of fine china, something that is valuable but vulnerable. Provide with her the physical care and protection that you can. And of course, husbands must never use their greater physical strength to intimidate their wives verbally or physically. No Christian man should ever do such a thing. And it happens way too often. And honestly, the church should be ashamed. We don't cover that up. And finally, Peter reminds husbands that they're accountable to God. And I think this is the one that just makes me, this is where the buck stops for me. That as husbands, that God will judge us if we misbehave. Peter says that a failure to love our wives results in God ignoring our prayers. That's an ouch. If Christian men treat their wives wrongly, Peter is saying their prayers suffer. And I would go say, so far as to probably say for two reasons. First, men who are selfish and overbearing are unlikely to be the kind of people who spend a lot of time in prayer. Well, that's a general statement. No, that's probably a true one. But even more, God doesn't listen to the prayers of hypocrites. Many Christian husbands maintain this respectful appearance at church, but at home they sin terribly against their wives and kids in anger and injustice and selfishness and worse. And Peter is what he's saying to the husband is you can't hide from God. Let me put it this way. Your prayers to God are hindered because you're out of fellowship with your wife. That's what Peter is saying. And the idea is this, that when you approach God in prayer, we usually presumably approach because we need something, right? God, this is what I need. So actually, when we look at prayer, prayer comes in as a position of powerlessness. And man, if you've used your position of power in your marriage to serve yourself and not your wife, why would you think that God would use his position of power to serve you? 
And, and this is really a, a, a general scriptural principle that the gospel is about a God who is strong, using his position to serve the weak. Those who believe the gospel should come like, like the gospel, which means we show the change by using our position of power to serve the weak. That's what we're to do. If you're always using your position of power to serve yourself, how can you claim to know Jesus? Whose ultimate position of power is to serve you. So, maybe you're in a marriage and you've given up on God because he never seems to respond to your prayers. Well, do you want a vital, vibrant, powerful prayer life? where God answers your prayers, then honor your wife. Live with her in an understanding way. It seems so easy. So what's our takeaway this morning? Wives, don't seek to dominate or force your husband into Christianity by nagging or coercion, but instead seek to make him glad, at least that you're a Christian, by the benefits he receives from your commitment to Christ. You're doing good to him because you're committed to Jesus Christ and obeying what Jesus commands. And these commands you have to obey, I believe, will bring good to your husbands. So wives, there are areas in your life where you need to, maybe where you're finding to dominate your husbands to get what you want. I would go so far as to say that needs to stop. Be aware of what you're doing. Husbands, don't seek to dominate your wives just because they're, quote, the weaker vessel. Go so far as to use your strength uh, to keep them safe. Get rid of that word dominant. Understand that you must also submit your desires to her needs and care for her as an equal heir with you of God's grace. That's marriage. The submission to one another. And the difficulty of submission, because, you know, again, this doesn't come from the text, but you see it in everyday life. It's just flat out difficult to submit because we want to do things our own way, right? We don't want to be told what to do. We want to do things our own way. We, our own selfishness is in the forefront. And yet the best example we have of submission is Jesus. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus had to submit to this crushing, but what beauty came out of it? Like in short, I, I honestly believe men, women, we, ha we have to be submissive in everything. And Peter gives us a great example of submission to people who aren't worthy of our submission in the first place. Government, employers, now maybe even spouses. But he tells us that we have to submit to ungodly people in many cases. And this is another way that we proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I'm convinced, and as a pastor, my heart breaks many times, but I believe that our marriages ought to be amongst the most convincing, apologetic for a cynical world. So here's my challenge to both husbands and wives. Wives, <laughs> ask your husbands what you could do that would preach a sermon about the generosity of the gospel to them. Can you do that over lunch today? Husbands, do the same. I think that's how you begin to change your spouse, for the good way. Not through nagging, 
Not changing him to meet your selfishness and your own needs and desires, but changing into a beauty of a wonderful relationship. Christ changed us by serving us in grace. And I think that's how we change the hearts both of our spouse and of our cynical watching world. Grace and generosity has a power in it that's just unbelievable. And that's the power of the cross and resurrection. And I believe that as Christians, married, that that's what our relationships need to look like. Honestly, transparent. If there's an issue where we can't talk, or there's a hill that neither of us are backing down, then maybe, maybe it's time to bring in somebody to help you process it. Maybe it's time to go for counseling, go for therapy, and work it out. Because you've already said, I do. You've already said, till death do you, you part. And when I do premarital, I usually say divorce is not an option. You make this work. And sometimes it takes repentance. Sometimes it takes forgiveness. But you make it work. Why? It's something that God gave us. It's a gift. Let's pray. Father, the more I meditate on this, the more that I see that the deeper my character is, the better my marriage will be. So God, I, I, I just say forgive me for my selfishness and my attempts to dominate my relationship. Work in me to exhibit the fruit of your spirit both inside of me and the way that I relate in my marriage. But also, God, with my employer and my government. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? In ancient times, the one who blessed extend his hands for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did this. Likewise, if you could stay a moment and stack the chairs eight high before you leave, we'd really appreciate that. Soul Sanctuary, may God enable you to know the freedom you have in Him. May you find who you truly are because of who He has called you to be. May your actions draw others to see God more clearly. And may each of you embody unity, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now be blessed and go and live the church and we'll see you next week.